0: I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. It's a familiar passage. Let me read this for you, 9 through 14, Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. a sinner. I tell you, this man went down into his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Reading of God's word, brothers and sisters. Last July 7th in Paris, the U.S. women's soccer team defeated the the Netherlands uh, for a fourth uh, world title in, in women's soccer. It was a pretty spectacular game. Uh, the outcome didn't really surprise anybody. They were favored. Uh, the United States team had dominated their sport for a number of years. Th- they were led by uh, two women, uh, one whose name was Alex. The other one was an outspoken, politically active woman named Megan Rapinoe. The win didn't surprise anybody. There was a lot of celebration. There was a lot of interviews. You know how these things go. Somebody wins a championship. Everybody's shoving a a microphone in their face and want to know what they think. And and generally, what they say is something like, well, I couldn't have done it without the team. I couldn't have done it without the coach. I couldn't have done it without fans, so on and so forth. But here's what happened with Megan. Two days after that, uh, she was in a celebration, in a parade. And she had the trophy. She was holding on to it and somebody asked her something, and she looked into the camera and said, I deserve this. And, and th- there was just kind of a pause for a second, and, and then just in case people didn't understand what she was saying, she said, I deserve this. Now, that, that, was, that went viral Okay, and maybe not for the reason you think. And, and again, this is not the typical team attitude, but it's become, listen to this, it's become the chant of a generation. She's becoming an icon. She, all of a sudden, she has become a role model. I mean, she's very outspoken on women's rights. Uh, she has some things to say that probably some people need to hear about how women are treated in the workplace and in sports and so on and so forth. but this whole concept that her her bold brash statement of I deserve this has taken on uh, a life of its own and people are being encouraged to follow her to follow her example that that she's worked hard for this and she is good at what she does and and she does deserve this and you know we've come to accept these things when it comes to sports or entertainment uh, but we allow them to creep, the, to, to, to seep into other parts of our lives. I can't, for the life of me, figure out that because somebody can run farther or, or throw a ball faster or something like that, why they have credibility in the political arena. I, 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 I don't understand why if I would pay good money to go to a concert and listen to somebody I need to listen to their political views and and give them credibility on all this. But that's kind of the culture we're in, and it's the culture that Megan's in. And so her, her whole thing about I deserve this has become a template for a whole generation of people that are around her. It's there, but the question is, is... Is that healthy? Is that good? We kind of give a buy to the people in sports and that sort of thing. You say, well, you know, it's sports. It's not that serious. But what are we absorbing when we buy into this sort of thing? So today's sermon, the, the, the Pharisee and the Tax Collector, uh, part of our ongoing intermittent series called Stories that Have Changed the World. It's about parables. We'll hear another one next week. Um, it addresses that attitude that seems to be rising up ever more in our culture that any of us may have something coming to us. The attitude that we might actually deserve something. Well, what is it that we deserve? So. Let's talk about this parable. Let's talk about the context first, because as we found out as we go through these parables, it's really important to understand what's going on around the parable. Otherwise, we're going to miss some of the deeper teachings in the parable. So the context for this parable starts in the previous chapter, uh, Luke 17. Uh, There's a confrontation. You know, Jesus is deep into his ministry. There's a lot of things going on. He's had a number of confrontations with the Pharisees. Each one of them seems to get a little bit more animated. And uh, the Pharisees are turning very quickly against Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. And in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 20 of Luke, they want to know if the kingdom is coming now. Okay? And so Jesus turns and says, well, you're wondering when the kingdom is coming? and, And that's a good question. We all have that type of question. When is the kingdom of God coming? But Jesus has this incredible thread that runs through his teaching about what the kingdom is. And essentially, it's him. He tells the Pharisees, the kingdom is among you. And what he's saying is the kingdom is me. Now, it's not the first time he said it. He said it a number of times. Uh, and, you know, and I've said this before. I, I, have, I, I wish that Jesus would have been more explicit about this. I wish that Jesus would have gone up and say, John, the kingdom is near. Now the kingdom's further away. Get it? <laughs> so he so wasn't that explicit. So the Pharisees aren't getting it. Jesus is saying the kingdom is among you. The problem that you have, he goes on to explain, is it doesn't look the way you thought it would look. Now, for years, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come and deliver them from the oppression to the Romans. And so Jesus is literally telling them, you know, this is not about oppression of the Romans or the Chaldeans or the Babylonians or the Persians or whoever is oppressing you at the moment. The kingdom looks differently than you think it's going to look. And when the the Messiah comes, you're not going to expect what he's going to do. And when he comes back, to claim his own, the people that he claims are not going to be the people that you expect him to claim. So the kingdom really doesn't match up to your expectations, but it is Jesus Christ reciting scripture to these people, telling them that he's the son of God, Uh, and relating scripture to him and in the meantime he's doing all these miracles people are getting healed the lame are walking the deaf are talking uh, the deaf are hearing the, the the mute are talking and he's even raising people up from the dead and that doesn't seem to have any credibility with these people so Jesus says the kingdom's here and, and it's not what you expect. And then he rolls into this, this parable of the persistent widow at the beginning of chapter 18. And the whole point about the persistent widow is about justice for the elect. Well, who are the elect? Now, I know you're getting a little tight spot in your tummy because every time the word elect comes up, we, we have a big argument. I am going to talk about how you get to be the elect. Okay, that's for another day and another time. But let's just agree that there are a group of people in the New Testament that are known as God's elect. They're God's children. They're the people that are saved, the people that have not rejected Jesus Christ. They're the ones that are going to heaven. So who are this elect that justice is going to come to? We don't have to wait too long because right there in the parable of the persistent widow, we get the answer. It's in verse 7 of chapter 18 of Luke. It is those who cry out to him day and night. Now, this is not just public prayer. This is not just people that are crying out to God uh, in in the hard times. This is an idiom in the Jewish language. And what it means are those who are constantly dependent upon him. Those who trust in him. Those who count on him for every moment of their lives. Those who put him as their highest priority. It's a cry for help a cry for assistance, a cry for mercy, a cry for grace, from people who know that they can't do these things on their own. So the elect are those who cry out. Well, what does that crying out look like? And, you know, as as I started working through this, I had to start asking myself some questions. Do I cry out to God for help? Are there areas in my life that I feel self-sufficient? Are there areas in my life that I feel like I'm fully capable of handling? We've all been through this, brothers and sisters. We've all been in a situation where we go, you know what, God, I got this one. I'm pretty good at this. You've gifted me very uniquely to handle this sort of thing. Why don't you just get out of the way and I'll take care of it? Are there areas in our lives when we're not dependent upon God? And let's be honest with each other, there probably are. We probably all have some area that we feel pretty comfortable in that we don't need any help in. Well, the fact of the matter is that Jesus is trying to tell us through some of these parables that we can't do it on our own. That we, it, what our best is not good enough to get through the things that we're supposed to get through. So a little bit of self-examination has to happen here. Uh, and as I go through that self-examination... I I begin saying to myself, well, there are some areas I fall short in. Am I one of the elect? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Am I one of the elect? Am I a Christian? And if I am a Christian, what makes me a Christian? What makes me different than somebody who's not a Christian? See, so we've got this progression from Jesus saying the kingdom doesn't look like it looks like, like you think it looks. There are some unexpected people in the kingdom. Justice will come to those who are in the kingdom, those who depend on God, and then he defines those who are in the kingdom in this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So, our parable has two main characters in it, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, you're probably familiar with these people. Let me give you a refresher on it. Pharisee. Pharisee. Um, He's a member of a Jewish religious sect, okay? Uh close as we can come to it. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's kind of like a political party. Uh, and their platform, their beliefs are uh, they believe in the law. Uh, we would call them legalists or fundamentalists today. Um, the only thing that trumps the law for them is tradition, uh, handed down teaching through the elders of, of, the, uh, of the faith, uh, so they had this thing about the law they had this thing about tradition the thing about the Pharisees that we need to understand and you know looking back on this we, we kind of paint a picture of these guys and my picture of the Pharisees were all these mean old guys they're, you know they're, they're kind of old they're probably walking through the, the, the community hunched over and they're, and they're ah, I hate these kids they're always under my feet and that sort of thing and, but that's not who they were these are the religious elite of the community. These, the, these guys were dressed to the nines. They held positions of esteem. They had high status in the community. They were privileged. They generally had a fairly decent amount of money. I don't know that they were rich, but they, they were the people that when they walked down the street, moms and dads would lean down to their kids and say, Hey, Timmy, there's a Pharisee. Don't you want to be a Pharisee someday? They were people that people aspired to. So they were held in high regard in the community. So there's our first character, the Pharisee. The second one is the tax collector. And the tax collector, uh, and again, we, we have a picture of tax collectors that we might have to adjust just a little bit. Yes, they were corrupt. Yes, they worked for Rome. Their job was to collect the taxes that Rome levied upon the people. So they were not real well liked, but they were admired. They were the rich guys in the community. They had all the money. And yes, they took advantage of people. Uh, and yes, they were in a situation where sometimes they collected more taxes than they should. But if anybody complained, the response would be to collect more taxes from that person. So everybody kept their mouths shut up. Uh, but they were the ones who walked through town. They had the big homes. They had the big chariot, had four wheels instead of two. Two horses instead of one. You know, and when they rode through town, people secretly admired them. They had everything they were part of the Roman Empire, most powerful uh, empire in in the history of the world the thousand year reign of the roman empire and so on and so forth so they weren't they weren 't mean, old cogity, lonely people, but they weren 't well liked so they were considered collaborators with Rome so with these two men, we have this 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 one who is a a respected leader, and we have the other who is kind of tolerated but not well liked. And bear in mind that Jesus is talking about who's in the kingdom, who the elect are, and what the people in the kingdom look like. So in Luke eighteen nine, he Tells us who the audience is. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, I like that. That's a good translation. The uh, Christian Standard Bible, which used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, has a, another good translation. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. So there's the audience. The audience is self-confident. The the audience is self-righteous. Now, we know what those words mean, but here's the thing about the audience that we might not know. The audience was convinced that God was on their side. They were absolutely positive that they were doing God's work. They weren't listening to Jesus Christ. They weren't interpreting scriptures correctly the way he interpreted them, but they they thought they were doing God's work. And maybe they might have been, except look who they trust in. They trust in themselves. So here's a situation they're in. They're dependent upon themselves. They're not dependent upon God. They're not a reflection of the character and nature of God to their community, uh, they're, they're not really doing what God called them to do. They don't depend on him for everything. They don't rely on him for everything. They're trusting in themselves. And the word of God is standing in front of them and saying, I'm the one you've been waiting 4,000 years for. Here are all the prophecies I've fulfilled. Here are all the miracles I've done. Here are all the signs and wonders. You hear me teaching with authority. You know, and even Nicodemus comes out of the crowd at some point and goes, well, we know you're, you're from God. Okay. yet they're rejecting him. They're turning their back on him, and they're doing everything they can to give him a hard time. And here's what they were struggling with. They're not believing what Jesus is saying. They're saying we don't see that in Scripture. we ever read the Bible that way? I mean, have you ever found something in the Bible you don't agree with? And and you just decided to pass over it? <laughs> I mean, I used to do that. I'd, I'd go, well, that can't be right. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I wasn't blatant about it. I didn't shake my hand at God and go, you got this wrong. But I'd go, that must mean something else. One day I'll look at that a little bit closer. <laughs> and I kind of stuck to the parts that I liked. See, that's what they were doing the parts that didn't agree with where they thought they were in their relationship with God they just kind of disregarded and they got a man standing in front of him that is raising dead people out of the tombs and they're going well that can't be from God because the way I understand God or the way I like my God or I don't want to have to think about those things so so We got to be careful here because I find myself when I go through a parable like this saying about the Pharisee, what a jerk. (laughs) But I I can't believe that this guy is so self-righteous. I can't believe that he is so off base with his relationship with the Lord. And the only thing I haven't done yet is look up into heaven and go, thank you, Lord, for not making me like this Pharisee. (laughs) Do you see? Do you see how easy it is to fall into self-righteousness? I mean, obviously the Pharisee's wrong. Obviously he's, he's misinterpreted something. Obviously he's got some pride about him. And I can take a lot of pride in recognizing that. So we have to be very careful that we don't fall into the same trap that the Pharisee did. We have to read our Bibles objectively. We have to be careful not to judge the people around us. Not even this Pharisee. We have to be careful not to compare ourselves to him and come out on the top. It's so easy for us to do. And he had this self-confidence of, I'm a religious man. I know the word of God. Well, that's, that's the audience that Jesus is writing to. So let's take a look at the parable. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, we talked about them. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. He's off to a pretty good start, actually. Uh, A lot of the psalmists would agree with him, God, I thank you. The attention is on God, but look what he's thanking God for. Thank you that I am not like other men. Now, all of a sudden there's a division there there's a distinction between him and other men who are these other men well they're extortioners they're unjust they're adulterers or even like this tax collector now the tax collector is standing right there and the pharisee who is the pride of the community and probably has everybody's attention going thank you god that you didn't make me like this guy over here i'm definitely better than him Then he goes on to to list the things that he's done for God so that God would be reminded of what a good guy he is. I fast twice a week and I tithe of everything that I get. So he's not really thanking God. He's kind of thanking himself for being so great. He runs down his list of accomplishments. And, and, and again, we've got to be careful not to look at that and go, now, now wait a minute, you know, I would never do that. I would never, I would never take that attitude. I would never adopt that, that posture towards someone else. But this man clearly sees himself as being closer to God. And being closer to God, he feels that he is more holy. And being more holy, he feels that he's more right. Again, it's a trap we can all fall into. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the tax collector starts off right as well, God, but look what he does. He repents. He confesses that he's a sinner. I mean, we see this incredible dichotomy here between the pride of the Pharisee, the the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, and the humility of the tax collector. Now for all that, these guys have five things in common and five differences between them. Here's the things they have in common. Number one, they're in the same place. They're in the temple. The tax collector isn't out in the community and the Pharisee in the, in the temple. So the tax collector is in church, <laughs> and the Pharisee is with them. They're in the same place. They, they're both there to pray. The Pharisee thanking God for making him such a great guy. Uh, the tax collector asking God for mercy because he knows he doesn't measure up. Uh, they're there at the same time. I mean, the Pharisee's able to point to the tax collector, so they're there maybe during the height of the day, during, during the morning service, as it were, and they prayed to the same God. So uh, Luke is very careful to use the word theos for uh, the the name of God here. We're we're talking about the same one and only God, the one true God. And each man spoke of himself. So they're in the same place. They're there to pray. They're there at the same time. They pray to the same God. And each guy speaks of himself. The difference is in what they say about themselves. The Pharisee, if you take a look at what he has to say, he uses the word I five times in two verses. He uses God's name one time. The Pharisee mentions himself, but only in relation to the fact that he's a sinner, that he needs God's mercy. So those are the things they have in common. Here are the differences between them, okay? Uh, The Pharisee is self-congratulatory. He's self-praising. He's pointing out to God and everybody around him all the great things he's done and what a wonderful person he is. The the tax collector is self-deprecating. He's humble. He's not laying claim to anything other than the fact that he needs mercy. He needs grace. The Pharisee is socially elite. He's the cream of the crop. He's the top of the community. The other one is socially outcast, respected in the community, but nobody really wants to socialize with him. The Pharisee is relying on merit. He's relying on the things that he's done. He's relying on the accomplishments that he's made. He's saying, God, thank you for helping me be part of the choir, helping me have perfect attendance at the church, helping me to work down at the community soup kitchen, and so on and so forth. And, and, and as, as humble as he tries to sound on that, what he's really doing is just listing his qualifications for holiness. And meanwhile, the, the tax collector is relying totally on mercy. He has no qualifications. He has no right to stand before his father. He humbly goes for him and asks for God to shed his mercy upon him. The Pharisee's flippant. He's approaching God as an equal. We have to be so careful of that. We have to be so careful of taking God for granted. We have to be so careful of of approaching him too casually. I hear these things. I, I hear Me and J.C. just hung out yesterday. J.C. doesn't want to hang out with you, and he doesn't have a nickname. He wants your heart. He wants to save your soul. He wants to become one with you. See, 2,000 years have passed, but some of the attitudes are still there. I don't have a problem with wanting to be with Jesus Christ, and I know we don't all express it real well. But we just got to be really careful. Because we're talking about a holy God. We're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about somebody who died in our place. We're talking about somebody who allowed themselves to be tortured and beaten, nailed to a cross, surrendered his life up in payment for our sins. We've got to be careful not to take him too casually. So the Pharisee approaches God rather flippantly. And the tax collector is reverent. He's in awe of a holy God that might even pay attention to him. So the question is, which one of these two is closer to God? Well, the answer is right there. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, he's talking about the tax collector, went down to his house, justified. he justifying his relationship to his father, uh, is reconciled to him rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself and this means to raise himself up higher in order to gain honor and respect from other people, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, the one who lowers himself, who who manages to approach God with some humility will be exalted. See, and therein lies our guidelines for what makes us a Christian how can I tell if I'm one of the elect? It's all laid out right here. Now, now listen very carefully because I'm going to give you these and none of us are going to be good at all of them. We're all going to fall short in one area or another, okay? It doesn't disqualify us from uh, the love of God, but this is a good gut check for us on where we are in our sanctification, where we are in our relationship with our Father in heaven because these are laid out very clearly for us. So, what makes me a Christian? Well, I'm, I, I I pray that I'm not self-praising, but that I am self-deprecating, that I'm humble before the Lord, that I'm not constantly looking at the people around me and saying, "Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I'm doing? Do you, do you know do, do you know how many doctorates I have? How many commendations I have? Do you know do you know what all of my qualifications are?" and and, and pointing to myself rather than my Father in heaven. So my My self-identity should be one who has been the recipient of God's grace, not one who has accomplished anything. So instead of self-praising, we should be self-deprecating. Instead of socially elite, instead of having the respect of everybody, instead of having everybody's admiration and trying to cultivate that out of people, we should be outcasts. Now listen very carefully. That doesn't mean that we should go against the grain for everybody who disagrees with us. But we should be outcasts in that rather than trying to identify ourselves with a movement or with an attitude or with a political party or with some issue, that we are identifying ourselves with Christ to the point that where any difference we might have with somebody is overcome by the love of Christ. And we're here not to align ourselves with anybody, but to be vessels of love and mercy to be messengers of the gospel. The gospel is not welcomed by the world. We are outcasts in that we have the one message of repentance and salvation for everybody in the world, and the world doesn't always want it. Somebody told me a couple weeks ago, I'm an outcast with all the Democrats. Well, that's not what God's looking for. Or Republican or whatever party you're in, I don't care. You're looking for people who will be willing to set apart for the Word of God. Not trying to gain the respect of men, but trying to harvest the souls of men. We should not rely on our own merit, but we should rely on mercy. We should rely on grace. We should understand the thing that we always say to each other, grace is unmerited favor, we can't earn it. We can't qualify it. We can't do anything to get it. We should understand that the grace that we receive comes by virtue of the fact that God is who he is, not who we are. We should not be looking at our own excellence. But brothers and sisters, we should see our own depravity. We should see that we are unable to save ourselves, that we're unable to make ourselves holy. Without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're lost. And we should never be flippant, always reverent towards our Father. So Megan Ripeneau, the icon of our generation, the role model, the one we're to follow, the one who sets the pace for us, tells us, tells us that we deserve trophies. Tells us that we deserve recognition. Tells us that we deserve to be rewarded for what we've done. Tells us that we've worked hard and we deserve to win. And it all sounds good. But Scripture, brother and sisters, Scripture tells us that we deserve condemnation. That the only thing we've earned is the lake of fire. And that the only thing that will rescue us from the lake of fire is not by anything we've done, not by any reward that we've got, not by anything we've accomplished, but by the grace of God. The question is, who do we follow? Who do we allow to influence us? Who do we allow to motivate us? You know, if, if, if we see what Scripture says and we see that, that Christ has entered our life and there are changes going on inside us and maybe we don't measure up to every one of these these, uh, barometer points that we see here, but we're making some progress in it uh, and that it's happened by the grace of God, we begin to see the magnificent love that our Father has for us. That he saved us when we were but yet sinners. We saved us when we had turned our back on him. And see, we have... We have that message. We have the message of the love of Christ. That those who repent from their sins and turn towards him will have everlasting life. Follow Megan Ripino for Jesus Christ. Thank God for his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you praise. Such an awesome God. We give you praise for the abundance of your love. We give you praise for your unending mercy. Your boundless grace. Father, we give you praise for the gift of your Son. And Lord, we we thank you for the Holy Spirit who's there to tell us when, when we've begun to act like Pharisees, Father, draw us back from there, that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of the gift that we've been given, Father, that we might be that reflection of your love and your grace and your mercy to those around us, to all those around us, Father, uh, all the lost who are so desperately in need of answers to their lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.